<laughs> We're having a good time. So have you ever used a word and, and you weren't fully aware of the meaning, okay? Or you've used a word and you're uh, not quite sure what it meant at all in any way, shape, or form. Or perhaps a phrase, okay? You've used a phrase. Perhaps you've used the acronym SNAFU, okay? If you, if you don't know what SNAFU means, you would probably never, ever use it again. Or if you knew what snafu meant, you would probably never, ever, ever use it again. Have you ever used a word that you used it carelessly or unknowingly? Have you ever had the phrase, it's not hard, it's not far, I will be there on time? Even though you had no intention of being there on time. Have you ever used the phrase, what more could go wrong? (laughs) Words or phrases that we either use carelessly or unknowingly. Have you ever used the word love? Not fully aware of all of its implications. So you say to someone, I love you. Do you really know what that means? Or peace. Words this last week. We have a number of quotes this last week because it was a week full of excitement and delight. And I'm just going to pull this back a little bit so I don't trip here. Um, uh, Quote number one, John I have a car here with two live cats in it. Jeff Schwalbe, Niswa Automotive. Jens Voigt, yesterday on the Tour de France, talking about a grand fundo that will happen this fall out in California, north of San Francisco. We will have ice cream, popcorn, and sausages. <laughs> I just, I want to go for the sausages. Sitting at the Grandview docks on Friday evening, okay, here's the deal. Anna had invited one of her little friends over to our house, and so we went and picked her up. Um, uh, She was working at Ernie's, and then when we picked her up, I said, hey, do you guys want ice cream? And who doesn't want ice cream, for goodness sakes? Friday evening was absolutely gorgeous, okay? And so we go to Grandview to get ice cream, and we pull in, and, and we execute, we execute, just, just tight, okay? We're about 100 yards out from the docks. We deploy our fenders. We um, put our bow line on. We put our stern line on. We are ready to go so that when we pull up to the dock, we have two little girls that step off of the dock. Boat is in control. No muss, no futz, no craziness at all. So I'm sitting there. Because they ran up to get ice cream, I had Zella in the, in, in the boat with me, and, uh, and, and I'm watching other people come in. And it's amazing to me how many people come up to the dock and all of a sudden like, oh, wow, we got to get our fenders out. Actually, they call them bumpers. <laughs> I had my Tilly hat on. I had a pair of sunglasses on. It was pulled low. I was incognito, okay? But I know the person who said this. And I totally just so want it. You've got to be kidding me. There's no way you should be using that word to describe those things. It's amazing to me how many people pull up to a dock completely unprepared for what is about to happen. I'm like, you've had a lot of time to think about this. You are on the water. The boat is coming towards the dock. You want to get off on the dock. Why aren't you prepared to disembark? Then there's this one little kid who is trying to embark, but actually he was trying to disembark. He was maybe three, maybe four. He was not getting on the pontoon. He was throwing a, he had just blood and gasket and all sorts of stuff going everywhere. It's amazing what you can learn about people just by hanging out, hat pulled low, sunglasses on. (laughs) 
Like I said, it was a fun and crazy and wonderful week. Let's get to Revelation. This is our last week in chapter 5. Okay, so page 1030. And we're going to do what we've done the last couple weeks and, and what we've done in the book of Revelation. When we come to the places where there's more white space and less words, we will say those all together. Okay? It's poetry, it's song, it's music, so we'll respond accordingly together. There's three of them today. I will start by reading Solo, verse 1, chapter 5, 1030. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, set out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. At the start of last week, a friend of mine by the name of Carl came up to me and said, okay, so now talk to me about this a little bit. We're in this thing called Revelation. Yep, we're in this thing called Revelation. Okay, is it talking about stuff that is going to happen or has already happened? And, and basically, remember when we did the intro and there's those four ways of looking at Revelation, how it fits Okay, we looked at the reality because that's what Carl was asking. Which of the four is it again? Is it the preterist that everything that happens in the book of Revelation is in the past? It has already occurred. Is it the historist, which means that the book of Revelation is unfolding throughout human history and specific people can be identified very specifically as figurative strength, weakness, these types of things in its pages? Or is it the futurist that most of the book or all of the book is yet in the future? And then the fourth view that Beale argues for is this redemptive historic idealist, which says that basically the book of Revelation talks about two different things. A, the end of the world, which will come. 
bets a future event and the reality that there seems to be, and not just seems to be, but there is this ongoing ontological battle between good and evil that is played out in the universe, in the creation, almost daily throughout the ages. When we get to this chunk of text, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Beale argues that this hasn't happened yet. Now, we can disagree with Beale if we want to, but Beale argues that, hey, you have a little bit of hint here of the Philippian verse where it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That this seems like something that has not yet happened yet, but it will. A frequent theme these last few weeks. And the question is, will we be ready? Because it's so easy for me to sit in a pontoon boat tied up to a dock and be critical of people coming in and docking because they're not prepared. It's so easy. I mean, like, breathtakingly easy. It's almost, it's almost a spectator sport for me. I would much rather watch that than watch a football game. But how many of us live life unprepared? Unprepared for what tomorrow brings. Unprepared for a future day when all of creation will confess who God truly is. And there's some disagreement with this passage in Revelation in terms of when it says all creation, does that just mean the created creatures? Does that just mean the animals and the plants and the landscape that we see? Or does that also mean all human beings? And if it means all human beings, does it mean all human beings, whether or not they know Jesus as their Savior or not? Or what exactly does that look like? And we can wrestle with some of those things, but no. If we take the totality of the book— we understand that this book speaks of two groups of folks. People who are identified with God and people who are identified not with God. And if you're identified with God, you are prepared if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you seek to follow him. And if those thoughts are just passing fancies or something that you casually dabble in, then we might make the argument we're not prepared. Revelation lays out this reality of good versus evil and the simple, the simple fact that good, represented by God, wins. Will we be ready? Now, these last couple chapters, 4 and 5, seem to move very fluidly between past, present, and future. 
And that's a challenge for us, okay? Unless you've read some unique novels, okay, in which like The Time Traveler's Wife, you kind of go through time. I'm not saying you should read it, but I'm saying it's kind of like that mentality that all of a sudden you're like, okay, where am I now? Okay, and, and you have this bit of wonderment about the book and what's going on. And, and typically, things that skip around are disconcerting to us, but, but not so much to God. We know that God is eternally existent. And, and those designations of time and space do not apply to God. God exists outside of our conventions of time and space and enters into them to be in relationship with his created order. So it's not confusing at all to God that there would be a chapter or multiple chapters that include elements of the past and elements of the present and elements of the future. And it's, again, one of the reasons that why, when we study the book of Revelation, we want to have the big picture in mind. We want to embrace the movement that Revelation expresses in individual chapters between things that have happened and things that will happen and things that continue to happen. What we can affirm is that today, if we're careful observers of creation, we can affirm that every living thing speaks to the reality of a creator. Each person in this room is put together in such a unique and magical and mystical way. It is only through the hand of a God who is intensely involved with his creation. You, whether or not you know it or not, speak to the reality of a creator. When we look around us, And we see the flowers and the gardens and the trees and, yes, even the rain and certainly the sunshine. When we see the landscape and the waters and the eagles on flight, all of these things speak to the reality of a creator. They all say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and honor and glory, and might forever and ever. We can look around us and simply by what we see, be aware of God. And because of the activity that God has, we can hope for the day and we can confess to that reality. And so I challenge us, do we see God being praised by every living thing? And do we look forward to the day, yet future, when every living thing will praise him? Are we ready to praise God with every living thing? Will we join in praising God? Big picture view. You don't have to worry about who the bad guys are, as long as we remain focused and sold out to the creator. The song. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Some songs stick in our heads, right? There's two songs. Actually, there's more than two songs, but certainly two songs that stick in my head from the movie world, okay? One of them, see if you can pick this one out. And specifically from The Godfather, which one? 
The main theme or the love theme? Because it's the love theme. <laughs> Careful of the oranges. Created by Nino Rota. And then the second one. As time goes by. Humphrey, Bergman, Casablanca. Play it. Play it, Sam. Not play it again, Sam. It's play it once, Sam, is the actual line. Play it because it reminds me of a better time. Play it because it gives me hope. Play it because it reminds me of when I was in love and long before the terrible condition of the world in which we find it. Play it because it allows me to be free to love. Play it because it allows me to contribute a verse or two to the song. Robert Coleman calls this song the crescendo of the universe. And John seems to be saying that the things that have been revealed to him are revealed in such a way that before we get to the end of all things, we need to know who is in charge. We need to know who is over all and is truly worthy of worship, even though there might be very tough days ahead. This song, like the end of chapter 4, reminds us that God is truly worthy to be praised, to be worshipped through our voices, yes, without question. But you cannot escape the implication of worshipping him through all of our lives, enhancing, serving, advancing the reputation of God. And to that we say, amen. which, by the way, I think is one of those words that we don't fully understand. Justin Martyr, who was a second-century theologian, pastor, writer, talks about this sense that, that churches in the second century would end their prayer time with this enthusiastic amen, so much so that he uses a Greek word that basically, because I don't speak or talk or learn Greek, he, he, it articulates a sense of a shout of applause. When we say amen, we tend to look at one definition of it, the, the sense of amen as in so be it, or the sense of amen as yes, God, we want this to happen. But it is a word that is much more complex than simply that. To be sure, it means be firm in its Hebrew origins. It means to be reliable. It means so be it. It means truth. In the Old Testament, frequently... For instance, Isaiah 65, 16, where it says God is the God of truth. Literally, it's God of amen. It's an oath. It's an endorsement. It confirms. It supports. It's established. It verifies. There's a firmness to this word. There is a certainty to this word. Jesus takes the Hebrew word amen and flips it upside down in the Gospels, okay? Next time you're in the Gospels and you see Jesus saying something like, verily, verily, old King James, or truly, truly, I say to you, literally, it's amen. 
which is a crazy usage. Jesus totally flips it upside down because the Old Testament usage is amen comes at the end, okay? It doesn't come at the beginning, but Jesus is like saying, no, amen, this is truth. This is reality. This is what you need to be in tune to. And so Jesus does not end a sentence with amen. He starts a sentence with amen. It's an agreement. It's the notion that I support what has just been said. It is unity. When we say amen, I am united with another person, with a community of faith in saying it. It is an affirmation. It is a connection. I am connecting with people throughout the ages. And here's something that I think we frequently miss in evangelical Christianity in the Western Hemisphere. We are connected to all believers, all followers of Jesus Christ, across the globe, across the ages. And when we say amen, we are connecting with people and a word that has been used by the people of God unchanged for thousands of years. It is the church affirming Jesus. It is the name of Jesus. Remember this? Chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen. It's another name for Jesus. It's personal ownership. It is credibility. It says, in essence, I am speaking something for God. And typically, as we see it, it occurs at the end of something else. The word amen is the intersection of a cheer, a roar, an oath, a celebration, a blessing, a promise. It is the intersection of hope. It is a word that is first, that is last. It is the last word in the entire Bible. It is a title of Jesus. It is rich beyond a buttercream frosting. And there's nothing better than a good buttercream frosting. Lots of butter, lots of sugar. The word features greater complexity than any woman. Can I get an amen? And it really is a mystery that exceeds understanding any weather and pattern. It is, in one year, word used throughout the Bible. It provides, in all of its richness, the sum of our understanding who God is with the simple reality that we will never completely understand God. And it's why we do what we do. This week was kind of a crazy week at Timberwood Church. We had Vacation Bible School, which at the front of the week, a week ago today, seemed like it might be threatened again by bad weather like it was last year. But no worries, okay? Went off without a hitch, just had all these little kids, rugrats running into stuff, wrecking stuff, dirting stuff up, because that's what this place is for. Little guys and gals to be running around having a good time. And then in the midst of it, we have this situation where a lady, okay, breaks down right in front of Timberwood Church. She's in her late 50s. She's homeless, living out of the back of her car. And through a remarkable course of events, okay, you have... 
places for her to stay for three nights. You have food provided for her. You have some financial resources. And ultimately, you have two individuals who are friends of mine volunteer to drive her from Minnesota yesterday morning to Miles City, Montana. And their only requirement in driving her that far is so they could get back to be in this room this morning at this time. They're like, can we get back for church on Sunday morning? I'm like, well, if you're willing to be on the road for 18 hours, you can. No problem. Why do we do these things? Why do we live our lives the way we live our lives? Why do people, 100 volunteers, take time out of their week in the middle of summer, and there are some beautiful days, and spend time engaging with students, teaching them about Jesus? We could say it's so that the community thinks we look good. <laughs> but to be truthful, I'm kind of at the point where I've been in the business long enough, I really don't care what people think about me. I do a little bit. We could say, well, what else would you do? I mean, someone breaks down in front of your house, of course you're going to take care of them and meet their needs. And, and, and yeah, but somehow that doesn't fully explain being willing to drive to Mile City, Montana on a beautiful Saturday in the middle of July. Why we do what we do, just so we're clear, is right here. Because we want to add our voice to every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, worshiping God. Not only on Sunday, when we can sing along to students and to a band and to a vocal team, but during the week when we can live our lives consistent as an act of worship to a holy God. And if we get that right, then the rest of Revelation falls into place with no worries, no cares, no concerns. Are there tough days ahead? Without question. Will there be tough days ahead in your life and in my life? Yes. But our focus is not on those things. Our focus is on the reality of the God that we worship who is described so beautifully in these two chapters. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you today and we worship you. And for those of us who are bold enough We declare we want to live our lives as an act of worship for you. For some of us, we've made that declaration in the past, and for others, we're making it for the very first time. And still, there's probably a few here today that aren't comfortable saying those words. But Father, we know that we can only do these things because your Spirit enables us to do them. And so if we're bold enough to make the declaration, I wish to live my life as an act of worship to a holy God, we know we can only make that 
and execute to that based on your spirit. And likewise, Father, if we are reluctant to say those words, allow your spirit to interact with our lives in such a way that the hesitation, that the hesitation dissipates. And we're willing to say yes to you. Father, thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.